verse number 1 and read through the first 11 verses. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I would appreciate if you'd pray for my voice. It is just not getting better. It's, um, it's having trouble in singing. I'm having trouble in preaching. And on Wednesday night, a few times I've lost it. And uh, I just cannot seem to get it on track. I'd really appreciate you praying for that, that it would get uh, better and well so I can talk. Uh, for a preacher, that's really a bad thing when he can't talk. And uh, maybe I talk too much and should talk less. And if that's what the Lord's up to, then that's fine. I'll cut back. But <clears throat> I need to be able to speak when I come to preach and teach. So if you would, please, I'd appreciate your prayers in this. It's becoming an annoying thing. Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Again, we come to Romans chapter 5, one of the great chapters in the whole of the Bible, and one that I hope that by now you're getting uh, familiar with. We've read it so often and talked about it so much, and especially these first verses. But again, I hope that you gain a sense of security. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if there's been a time in your life where you repented of your sin, believed on Christ as Savior, I hope that Romans chapter 5 and these first several verses have uh, given you a new sense of security, a hope and a trust and a confidence in what God has done versus, versus what we might have tried to do, that you're certain of your salvation. And if you're not, let me encourage you to allow us to help you. Let us, someone of the men of the church, would be glad for our men, some ladies of our church would be glad to speak to some ladies. If you have a question about your salvation or a concern about it, we want you to be certain about it. There ought not be any person in, in this country who has access to God's Word die in fear of where will I spend eternity. We should be certain of that and be absolutely certain. There should be a peace about it that should not be something you hope so. It should be a no-so circumstance. And it can be by reading God's Word and taking God at His Word. So by now, uh, you should have it well ingrained in you, the things that we have received. Look at chapter 5, verse number 1. We have received what? What's the first thing we've received, verse 1? Talk to me. Faith. They're justified by faith. That's what we call the salvation experience. And that salvation experience is not by any action, work, or deed that we have done. But as verse number 1, chapter number 5 says, it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. What else do we have, verse 1? Peace with God. Man and God were at war. And Jesus Christ went to the cross, died there on the cross to pay man's sin debt. And man and God now have been reconciled through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God and man are no longer at war. God has sent his son. God took the initiative, sent his son. His son died on the cross and, as it were, provided for us salvation in the Lord Jesus. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. So when you trust Christ and the work he did on the cross... You then are at peace with God, and you have peace with Him. Verse number 2, what else do we have? Access. And access here says, by faith into this grace. This grace, theologically speaking, grammatically speaking, is justification by faith. We have access into justification by faith, by faith. 
The fact of the matter is, as I pointed out to you, and I hope you won't forget, in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, Paul uses this word access, and it's the only other two places in the whole of the Bible where the word is used. And there, that access is to the Father. It is an access of prayer where I can go in and talk to God. I have a right to pray what's normally referred to as the Lord's Prayer when it says, Our Father who art in heaven. The only basis of praying that is that I have access to the Father and that access comes through my relationship with Jesus Christ. I have no right to the Father apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You must understand that. If you're not saved, you and God are at odds and at war, and there's no way you could enter into God's presence except for Him to hear one thing from you. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he wants to hear from you. All the people of this world, he has one desire to hear from them. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He does not want them to hear, he does not want to hear from them prayers concerning their family, their sicknesses, their, their debt, their finances. He wants to hear one prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When he hears that, he's open to every other prayer request you might have. But that comes first. Notice something else. It's not only access to God, but verse number uh, 3 or 2 continues the fact we have the certainty. The certainty. That's what the word hope is. We rejoice in hope or the certainty of the glory of God. That's something else we have. We have the certainty that one day we are going to be glorified. And that's what he speaks about in verse number 2 concerning the certainty of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word hope does not mean something I do. The word hope means something I have. I have the certainty that one day I'm going to be glorified because that's promised in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. But also there's something else in verse number 3. And not only so, I don't have all that. I don't just have peace with God, access to God, and the certainty of the glory of God, but I also have something else. I have in verse 3, not only so, but we glory in tribulation. I have the ability to glory, to rejoice in tribulation. That's something that no lost person can possibly do. When trouble comes to a lost person, a person who has no relationship to the holy God of heaven, when trouble comes to that person, there is no possible way they can rejoice in the tribulation. They may rejoice to get through it. They may rejoice when it's over, but they'll not rejoice in the tribulation saying this is good. This is good. And that's what this phrase means. The believer can look toward heaven and say, because I have peace with God, because I have access to God, and because I have the certainty that I'm going to be glorified with God someday, I can actually have the ability to rejoice in this trouble that's come my way because I know that God has a plan and He's working that plan in my life. Then we go through the fact of what that produces. Verse 3, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. The word patience means steadfastness, uh, stability, stable Christians. That's a good thing. Are you a stable Christian? I mean, do you blow like the wind? I mean, everything comes down the pipe. Do you get blown back and forth? Or are you stable? That's what this ideal is. It literally, it literally means stable in the wind. It means stable when something's running contrary to who you are and what you are. How are you when things run counter to what you're trying to accomplish? You have a family. You're trying to rear a family right and things go against it. How do you handle that? You see, tribulation worketh that. Tribulation helps you to be stable when things run counter to you. Verse number four, patience or steadfastness also produces experience. That means proven character. Proven character. It means it's tested you at your innermost being and it has given you some stability to the point that you are tested. You can handle it now. It's like a, a small tree that grows and as it grows, the wind blows it. And the roots go deeper and deeper and get more settled with every movement of the upper level branches. What it's doing is it's proving its character. It's going to make it a good tree by testing it early. And that's what this verse says. Patience creates proven character. That's what experience is. And then experience comes back to what we started with, more certainty. As you go through all that, you become more aware of how absolutely certain you are of your relationship to God because you begin to see the reasons behind the facts that happen, the problems that happen, the trials that come. You begin to see God's handiwork and what He's in to accomplish. Today we come to another thing that we have. It's in verse number 5. Today we come to something else that we have. Verse 5, and hope or the certainty that we've been talking about makes us not ashamed or means literally the ideal of 
It doesn't leave us embarrassed. It doesn't leave us uh, anxious or concerned or thinking that we've been left out of the loop, so to speak. This hope, this certainty gives us more assurance to the point that we're not backward or ashamed or embarrassed about what we have. I mean by that, and I think what Paul was meaning by that is there is no reason for a Christian to ever hang his head down and say, I don't know what in the world is going on in my life. That's what the ideal is. You don't have to be that way. You don't have to be ashamed or wondering or worrisome about what is God doing. You don't have to know everything He's doing. You don't have to know everything that come into your life. Well, what does this gun to accomplish? That's not important for you to know. You know what's important for you to know? This, that you have access to the Father, you have a relationship with Him, and a guarantee that He's going to work all things after the counsel of His own will, and He's going to use the things that come into your life that are marked bad, and He's going to use them for good. That's all you need to know. You don't have to know how every one of the blocks in life fit together and make a wall. You don't have to know that. You have to trust Him that He will, because you have His Word on it. That's what He's doing. This thing that we come to in verse number 5, though, and because, look at it, the hope maketh us not ashamed. We get to a point where we're not embarrassed or ashamed. Because, why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Today I want to talk to you about God's love and more security. What this boils down to is we all know the verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's part of what this verse is about, the love of God. The love of God that God gave and John three sixteen explains is the same for the world as it is for us. You know what the difference is? We were taken by it, convinced by it of God's great love for us, wherein he loved us, gave himself for us, and we trusted Him and believed on Him as Savior and Lord. It has been shed abroad in our hearts. For the lost man, it hasn't gotten to his heart yet. Oh, he hears it. And if there's people in this room who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and I quoted John 3.16 until I fell over dead, it wouldn't make any difference to your head or your ears. It's what gets to your heart. When the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's Word that Christ died for us and drives it into the depths of our hearts and with it comes the conviction of our sin that made Christ die there, we then realize how much He loved us. How much He loved us. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit sheds that or takes that truth and as it were permeates our lives with it. The song and, and what some people say... A song that was written by Frederick Lehman. This is a song that's in our hymn book. It's on page 188. It is the love of God. By the way, the first two verses were said to be written by Frederick Lehman. The third verse is said to have been scratched on the wall of an asylum. And everything I looked in my library about songs and so forth, I couldn't find anything concerning it or anything to dispute it. So we leave it with the idea that Laman wrote the first two verses and whoever wrote the third one personally did the best job. I like the third verse, but let me read the first two. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Verse 2, When hoary times shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so pure, so sure, shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Now verse 3, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. What a beautiful song, and I must say, and I agree, it is probably one of the best songs and the most complete songs ever written about the love of God. But some people don't write it down correctly. That is, they don't teach what God says about His love. They twist it a little bit. I was reading just this last week. There are some folks who teach that since the Bible says that God loves everyone, then it follows in the end that everyone will be saved. Wrong. That's not true. 
That's called universalism. And the Bible does not teach that because God loves everybody, that everybody is going to end up in heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that all people are born sinners. David said it in Psalm 51 verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And the Bible also says that in heaven, in God's presence, there'll be no sin. Well, then how are you going to get rid of this sinner and let him into God's presence? God had only one plan. It's the call, the plan of redemption. God said, I'll send my son. He'll pay the sin debt. And everybody believes on him. He becomes their substitute. And they can get into heaven based on what he did, not what they're doing. So my getting into heaven is not based on my keeping the Ten Commandments and doing good and living right. My getting into heaven is because Christ died for me, paid the sin debt, and I'm dependent, completely dependent upon Him and His righteousness. And I get there on His basis, not mine. When I pray to the Father, I don't come in there and say, look, I'm Rick Henry, I'm the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church, and I demand you listen to what i got to say. No, I pray. I come to Him in Jesus' name. Your son that you sent to die in my place, I come on his basis, on his righteousness, and I come on his account, not my own. And I say to you this morning that these people who teach this idea are absolutely poisoning the mind of people. There are people all over this world, in the media and everywhere else, who believe that because God loves the world, everybody's going to get to heaven. That's absolutely not true. That... There are a few in this same group, by the way, the people who teach universalism. There are some that even believe that because God is so loving that even the devil and all of his demons will one day be redeemed by the marvelous love of God. I assure you that is absolutely false. I assure you that it's false on the basis that the Bible makes it crystal clear that hell, everlasting fire, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 and verse number 41. The Bible says that hell itself was prepared for the devil and his angels. That means that they're not going to make it to heaven. And I assure you that they are absolutely not going to change. So my point is that the Bible does not teach that everybody's going to make it to heaven because God loved everybody. There's a second false teaching that going around. And that is that since God loves everybody and God is a God of love, that when God deals with the wicked, what he'll do is this. He'll simply annihilate them. It's called, in fact, it's produced as the doctrine of annihilationism. It is a doctrine of one person refers to conditional immortality. It means that what's going to happen is when God takes all his people out, whenever that time comes down the road, when we die off or God sends his son back for us, what he's going to do is he's going to take all the rest of the evil people and he's just going to sort of blow on them and they're going to go into oblivion. That's what they teach. They teach that God will put into oblivion all the people that are left. You know why they do that? Because they can't explain the love of God and the devil's hell. I'm not a great theologian, but I can explain that. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But for every person who does what the devil did in rejecting God, that person will spend eternity with them in hell or the everlasting fire, the lake of fire, which will be their place of transfer. The fact is, if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, I don't care how loving He is, you will not go to heaven. Heaven is prepared for prepared people. God sent His Son to die on the cross. He lived here for the period of time and He preached the gospel, shared it with His disciples, programmed them and discipled them to share it with another generation. They did. And it's coming time down to us. And we've received it. And our responsibility is to pass it on to another one. The reason would be simply stupidity to do that and spend all the money we do on missions if God in the end were going to save everybody because he loved the world so much. And that's not what he said. In fact, he said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. You go tell everybody that I sent my son to die on the cross. He was crucified for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day and is ascended to the Father. You go tell everybody that message. Why would he say go tell all that if in fact that's not necessary for folk to go to heaven? He told us that because it is necessary for folk to go to heaven. So the question is, have you believed the gospel? Have you believed that Christ died for you on the cross? Have you believed that you are a sinner as the Bible describes us as being? And have you pushed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work? I call your attention back here to Romans 5.5. 5. It says simply this, and this would be my 
interpretation of the verse. He says, the hope, the certainty of our relationship with God through Christ will not disappoint us, leave us ashamed, because God has shed his love in our hearts. That's the love of God. The love of God in our hearts is sort of a pledge of sorts. I guess you'd call it a commitment. You can call it an earnest Call it whatever you like. It's the pledge of sorts by God of the love he has to hold in his heart for us. That's what he's saying in this. By the way, I remind you that in the Bible there are at least three different kinds of love. Some will tell you four. I believe three would probably be more like it. There is the Greek word eros, which is what we call erotic or sensual or sexual love. The Bible also speaks of phileo love. It's called a brotherly love. It's a kind of, it's the word from which we get Philadelphia, phileo. Then there's the agape love. This is a special kind of love that is a gift of God to his people. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with and talking about here in this context. The love of God, which when it is received, gives us the ability, gives us the power, the capacity to love as we should. That's why... It ought not be that a saved person would marry a lost person because the lost person does not have the capacity, the power, or the ability to love as God ordained people to love one another. And the only folks who have it are those who have the love of God shed abroad or saturated with the love of God in their hearts. If you don't have the love of God in your heart, you have no ability, capacity, or knowledge to be able to love people the way God intended and ordained for you to love people. It just can't happen. And so consequently, the love of God is distinguishing mark between saved people and lost people. The Bible illustrates John chapter 5. Listen, John 5, 42, But I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. Christ speaking to a bunch of pagans. I know you. I see what you're doing and I see how you act. You do not have the love of God in you. And I can perceive that. He goes on in John chapter 8 verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And if you loved him, you'd love me. If you had a relationship with a father, you'd have a relationship with me. The point made is that Paul concluded in his epistles in Corinthians the same exact concept. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed. What? What are you saying, Paul? Paul's saying, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, God says you're accursed. And what he'll do with cursed people, that's what hell is for. Hell is a place where people will not bow down, believe on, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's where they go. It's repeated, a passage of Scripture in the New Testament. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 4. Look at these verses or listen to them. 1 John chapter number 4. Here's what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of of God and knoweth God. Did you hear that? Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now he's not just talking about a slobbering love of the world. He's not talking about eros and he's not talking about phileo. He's talking about agape kind of love. A kind of love that's given as a gift. So in turn you have now got the ability, the power and the desire to express that. That's what he's talking about in 1 John 4. He goes further. He, verse 8, he that loveth not Knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. For the believer, where the love of God is, uh, as the word here is in Romans chapter 5, and verse number 5, ekuno is the Greek word, crazy word, but it has something interesting to say. The word here is, in your text, is shed abroad. It really is that word ekuno, and it carries with it the ideal of poured out or gushing forth or something that's running freely. When I grew up on a farm in Tennessee, I'd often get to go to my uncle's farm up in the Cumberland Mountains. And when we'd get up there, it was very interesting. He did not have indoor plumbing in the sense that we know indoor plumbing. What he had was there was a, a spring that ran out of the mountainside, and they had plumbed that spring to run into that house. So when you'd go to the kitchen sink, it was running water all the time. I mean, it didn't have a turn on and off. I mean, this thing's just running water continuously. So you want to drink a water, just stick your, your glass under that thing and drink that 
that stream water came right out of that mountain, right into the side of that house, right to the kitchen sink. They didn't have any any other indoor plumbing, so there was an outhouse over the hill, and they had no running water there. Believe me, there was no running water there. Fact is, though, outside the house, if you were a farm worker, and many were who came to work on the farm, you go outside, they had also tapped from that same spring a, a, a small fountain. It went over to a place where you could kneel down, and as you knelt down, there'd be water running out of a, of a rock, technically. They had got a hole in the rock, and that pipe had been stuck back through there. And you could sit there and drink from that pipe water right out of that cool crystal spring that ran out of the mountains. Now, the amazing thing about that, when the exciting thing about all that was, it was free pouring, free running. It just ran constantly. No doubt thousands of gallons of water just were continuously running all year long from that thing. That's the ideal of this word here. This water runs freely just like this love that's supposed to run freely in the believer. It's shed abroad in our hearts. It is so saturated our hearts there should not be any aspect of our life where the love of God does not somehow affect it. That's what the point is. The point is, the love of God is, is so saturated your heart, is running so freely in your life, there should be nothing in your heart or your life, your actions, your attitude, that are not somehow affected by the love of God. That's what he means. It's shed abroad in our hearts. It's running freely. It's gushing forth in our hearts. Now, it doesn't mean you go around loving bad stuff. It doesn't mean that you go around calling good evil and evil good. It doesn't mean that. It means rather that in those things that you ought to love and care for, the Bible is saying the love of God is put in your heart so that it can effectively help you to that exact thing. The love of God is given so freely then to those who have been justified so that they can have a sense of security beyond anything anybody else could ever dream or imagine. Let me take you to a passage. You know it well. It's the passage in Romans 8 and 28. Listen to it if you don't want to turn. Romans 8, 28. You know it by heart and you should. We know that all things work together for good to them that, what? Love God. To them who are the called according to His purpose. Now I want you to see something about the verse that you may have forgotten or you may have missed. This verse does not say that all things work together for good to all the people of the world. Does it? No. It says it works for the good of what group of people? To those who love God. If you love God, all things work together for your good. If you don't love God, mm, doesn't say that. It doesn't say that everything's working for your good even if you hate God. It doesn't say that. Does God use some things in people's lives, even who they who hate Him, that He works things out so they'll be good? Come on, oh, absolutely. It, it rains on the just as well as the unjust. But when it comes to the matter of understanding and appreciating and, in fact, rejoicing, when trouble comes, the only people who can do that are the people who've been justified by faith, knowing I am loved so much, my Heavenly Father would only send good into my life, and even this bad is going to turn to good somehow to His glory. And I can rejoice in that. And that's what Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is saying. I can rejoice in the trial because of the assurances of God's love. Romans 8, 25, or 28 says that, but Romans 8, 35 says this. Listen, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? His question is well taken. What can separate us? What can disconnect us? What can get us beginning to doubt God? What can make us think somehow, some way, this is not right and I, I am somehow like a boat adrift on a great ocean? What can do that? His answer is in verse 39. Romans eight thirty-nine: Nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you get that? Nothing. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. The love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts that makes it possible for us to allow all the decisions of our life, all the activities of our life, all the attitudes of our life to be saturated with the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the reality of that fact. Nothing can separate us from that. Because it's shed abroad in our hearts. By what means, Paul? Back to Romans 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the means of the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. 
Who does it? The Holy Spirit. In this context, there's a, another point of security, by the way. We've not only been given the love of, of, love of God, which is poured and gushing into our lives to saturate every part of us. That's something else we've been given. But we've also, in verse number 5, been given the person of the Holy Spirit. I think we Baptists tend to not to appreciate this as much as we should because our charismatic brethren have scared us off from it. You know, we get scared talking about getting anything from the Holy Spirit. You know, what does he do to you? Does he make you say some stupid stuff? Does he make you act dumb and crazy? No, he doesn't do any of that. Let me give you a secret. The Bible teaches that everybody in this room has been saved by the grace of God has, has the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. If you know Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit of Almighty God indwells you right this moment. I, think, I can't think of a higher honor in all of the world than to have God Almighty's Spirit abiding, dwelling, living inside of me. I cannot imagine anything greater. That's about as high honor as God could have given us. Is to say, you know how I'm going to identify my people? I'm going to give a little bit of me. I'm going to put a little bit of me in every one of them. I'm going to place my spirit inside of them. And my, what a friend God is to us to do such a gracious and kind thing. To give us his spirit that lives and abides inside us. Have the love of God for sure, but we also have the Holy Spirit of God that abides in every single one of us. Now let me point out a couple of things that are just sticklers with me. Don't get offended. Don't get upset. Just a couple of stickers here that i got to get out of my saddle, okay? The first one is and has to do with the wording of our text. He says, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Now, the thing about that is, I, I wasn't, wouldn't say much about this except the fact that I believe the, that you need to understand that oftentimes, and children in our auditorium, in fact, have questioned this point. This is what's interesting. I read a reference some time back about the Holy Ghost. One of the young people of our own church came to me and said, Does that mean that God died? Now listen, that God died and this is his ghost. I said, No. And the question, theological question, at least for me, why didn't they use spirit? Well, the fact is, I think they have a point. You think a ghost, you think a death. You think a spirit, that's a different matter. Sometimes you'd think of death too. I wouldn't. I think in terms of the Bible and what it's saying in this context, and I believe it's important for you to understand God's not dead, the Holy Spirit's not dead. I personally prefer the word spirit in the context of this verse. And I assure you the Holy Spirit is not dead. He is alive and he is a person that very much indwells every believer. There's a second thing that complies or works with that. It's in verse 5 also. He says, the Holy Ghost which is given... That may be perfectly grammatically correct. It's just something bothers me. I prefer who? Because sometimes we get this idea of the Holy Spirit is not a person. He's a force. Which? This Holy Spirit, which is which is a force. He's not. He's a person. I prefer a pronoun that reflects that ideal. And I think, honestly, that the context bears that out across the board. And I think you ought to understand that. The Spirit's not dead, and He is a person, and He is alive, and He is at work in the life of every born-again believer. The third person of the Trinity. What a wonderful thought that God dwells in me by His Holy Spirit, who is a person. Now, you need to think about that. Let that settle in and sink into your heart, by the way. I mean, you're on a small secret. It's no biblical secret, but it is something we don't often point out. And that is the Holy Spirit's work in you is really further proof that you've been saved by the grace of God. You want further proof that you've been saved by the grace of God? The Holy Spirit will lend that to you. Here's a passage. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse number 14. Listen. For as many are led or as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear... But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now let me tell you what that boils down to. Paul knew and had said in the past, in other places of the Bible, In me, that is my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Now you need to know that. When you were saved, you were depraved. 
you were lost, you were a whole lot of things, some of which we'll get into descriptions when we get into verse 6 and following here in Romans 5. But the fact is, you were absolutely hopeless when it came to having a relationship with God. And the reason was because of what you were. You were lost in your sin, your hopelessness, your lifelessness, spiritually speaking. You had none. You're spiritually dead. And consequently, what's important to understand is then how and what takes place so that that all changes. Well, this passage of Scripture in Romans 8 talks about the Holy Spirit's work and leading us and directing us into truth, etc., etc. Here's the point about that. It boils down to this very simple thing. Every good, right, holy desire that you have, the Holy Spirit put there. Every one of them. You know when you think you ought to read the Bible? Do you think your old flesh came up with that idea? Do you think who you were before you knew Christ came up with that? Just go down the street of, of Franklin, Indiana and tap some guy on the shoulder and, and walk up and say, Hey, do you think you ought to read the Bible today? He's going to look at us and say, Did he let you out at noon? They're going to look at you like you're crazy. You nuts. I don't read the Bible. Well, what put that in your heart? Do you think you just came up with that because you ran around with us? No, 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 no. Whatever's good about you, the Holy Spirit put there. That's His work. That's His work. The love of God shed abroad in your heart, saturating every aspect of your life, knowing full well that since God loves you, you want to know who this person is who loves you. I want to know about Him. I want to know what He does, how He acts, what He thinks, how He feels. And you have a desire placed there by the Holy Spirit. So you'll get to know Him and know about Him and what He does, how He lives, how He functions, how He operates. No natural man has such a desire. And even believers, myself included, would not have it were it not for the Holy Spirit who lives in my life. That's the leading of the Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit. Let me take you finally to one other long passage. This is Ephesians chapter 3. A very great passage of Scripture. One that's interesting and fascinating in every dimension. Romans or Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to this beginning in verse 13. Ephesians 3 and verse 13. Ephesians 3.13 reads thus. Wherefore I desire, Paul writes to the believers at Ephesus... He says, uh, Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, uh, which is your glory. Don't, don't get upset and don't get all bent out of shape and, and don't get discouraged by what you hear happening to me because of you. Don't, don't let that bother you. It'd be like a pastor saying, look, you know, challenges that I face to deal with people who are our fellow church members, don't let it trouble you. Don't let it bother you. Everything will be just fine. This is to the Lord's glory and to your rejoicing. You need to be rejoicing in that just as I'd ask you to rejoice in trouble and trial. You need to rejoice in whatever comes on me for the sake of the ministry. Verse number 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He means I'm going to pray. Verse 15, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. By the way, did you get that? Present tense, of whom the whole family in heaven and in earth. By the way, that tells you that there are folks in heaven right now who are part of our family. And we know that. When somebody from our fellowship leaves this fellowship, go to be with the Lord, we don't think about them as never, you know, as in oblivion or non-existence. They're just somewhere else, but they're still part of our family. And the whole family of God on earth and in heaven, as, as real as we are here, those who've gone to be with the Lord are real, but in a different atmosphere or circumstance. And you ought to see that because that's what verse 14 is saying, or verse 15 is saying, of whom the whole family, the whole group of us, those in heaven and those of us on earth, all of us in the same boat here. Verse number 16 that ye or he would grant you, and he's talking about God, God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. That's uh, He's praying for their inner man to be strengthened, that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit who indwells them. And verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. I think the best way to put that is that Christ will be clearly seen in you since he identifies by living or living in you. If Christ lives in you, then it ought to make a difference on the outside of the house. 
It ought to be evident. Your, your facial expressions about matters, your language. If Christ lives inside, it ought to get outside. And that's what he's saying. Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love, all that business on the inside is somehow going to get its way outside and people are going to know Christ lives here. Verse 18. May be able to comprehend. Now look, this is that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you are being rooted and grounded in this love that uh, has been shed abroad in our hearts, Romans 5, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I want you to look in verse number 19 and I recommend you underline in your Bible the little phrase, which passeth knowledge. It's just an unsuspecting phrase, but it captured my attention when I read this. This is talking about to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. The verse is saying, by the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are able actually to experience a depth of love that our minds are unable to explain. There is an ability of your heart to understand the love of God to a point that you couldn't explain it. And I can't explain it. And by the way, we often, and I'm sure you know the fact is, we often talk about the peace of God that passeth all understanding, don't we? We've talked about that. A peace of God that passeth all understanding, Philippians 4, 7. We probably even quoted that verse. How many folks you ever heard talk about, though, the love of God that passeth knowledge? We don't seem to talk about that. Have a love of God that is so potentially experiential in our hearts that we can't even talk about, we can't explain it, it's just, we just know it. Yeah. You know what I believe it is without a doubt is the security that comes in Christ by understanding, comprehending, and appreciating how much I'm loved. How much I'm loved. And by the way, Paul helped that along back over to Romans 4 by what he said next in Romans 5, 6. Quickly, we got close. In verse 6, he said, When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here, no doubt, is the greatest manifestation of God's love in all the history of the world. You see, when we, you and I, were without strength, we were helpless, we were powerless to break or to weak, too weak to get to God, He took the initiative, He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. And He did all that in spite of the fact that when He did it, we were ungodly. Now, like ungodly, you talk about somebody being unhealthy, okay? Being unhealthy means you don't have good health. But unlike unhealthy, we were without God, all right. But the fact is, we didn't want God. And people do want to be healthy. The fact is, we were ungodly. We had no interest in God or God-like things. And so what actually happened was, God took initiative to come after us and to seek us, to speak to us, to work in our hearts and our lives. And we rebelled against Him. We rejected Him. We turned our backs on Him. We, we tried to, if you've ever gone through neighborhoods, as I did as a young kid, uh, dogs were allowed to run loose. And you'd walk through neighborhoods in the south, and there'd be two or three dogs that'd come out of their, you know, their off the porches, and uh, most of them were coon dogs and beagles, and they'd walk behind you, and, and by the time you got down the road two miles, there'd be seven dogs following you, know. The whole idea was they'd take anybody, and they, they wanted to be a part of you. And I can remember saying to those, get out of here, get, get you know, pick up gravel and throw at them, try and get them to go back home. You know, if you could just imagine, that's how men did God. God sent his son to this earth. What did they do to him? Did they take him down to the Jonathan Burbs and set him down to a great banquet and feed him? No, they crucified him. They said, if this is God, we don't want a part of God. We don't like him. We don't have anything to do with him. The message he brings, we reject. We reject him. We reject everything he stands for. We want nothing to do with it. So when it says godless or ungodly, it doesn't just mean they didn't have God. It meant they didn't want God. They didn't want anything to do with God. And by the way, that's the way it is with men, women, boys, and girls to this very day. You have to understand that almost all human natural love is based on two things. All human natural love based on two things. One, attractiveness of the object. Attractiveness of the object. Most of the men in this room who got married, first thing they noticed was the attractiveness of the person they were attracted to. That's the first thing. There's nothing the Bible says is wrong about that for us. But the fact is, that's what happened. We get attracted to it, and then we went to it, then we got to know the person, and we loved the person. The second thing, though, you'll find out about natural love is this. It typically loves that which loves it back. 
it'll give it a chance to love, and if it won't love back, it'll get rid of it, you know. That's why it's easy to typically get rid of an animal, you know. Till you understand that thing loves you, unless Brother Gary be that dog that's chewing up everything at your house. Now, that may be a different story, so I don't... But anyway, here's the thing. I, I, you can take an animal and you can love that thing, and if he shows absolutely no care for you, no interest in you, and you say, this, this, this may be a dog, but this dog is not man's best friend. You know, and you just had enough, and you get rid of it. That may be true in those cases, but with people, you look for a response. Do these people care for me? Do they love me? So we have attractiveness and return love. Listen to me, and listen to me good. Those are both wrong when they come to God loving us. One, there was nothing attractive about us, and this text proves it. This passage of Scripture, when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were without strength, and we were ungodly. And the fact is, there was nothing attractive about us to God. God looks down and says, oh my, what a mess. And he looks down in heaven, does, does he say, I am running the other direction? No, he doesn't. He says, I'm sending my son, and he'll die for them. he died for them. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us in that mess. He loved us in that shape. He looked down from heaven. We were unattractive. We did not love him. The Bible says this, 1 John, we love him because what? He first loved us. We wouldn't even think about it otherwise. If he had not loved us first, we'd say, no way, Jose, are we going to have anything to do with him? God loved us first. And then it came to be that we love later. Notice one other thing. Chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. I quickly close, I promise. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would some, some even, or would, even dare to die. Verse 8. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's point is simple. It's very uncommon for any person to sacrifice his or her life in order to save the life of anybody, let alone somebody who is high character. But his point of the text is still fewer folks are interested in giving up their life and their freedom to save a person that they know full well is wicked, uncaring, arrogant, selfish, self-serving, and all the other things you could name that describe the way we were when he found us. And Paul's point is, in verse number 8, with the word but, is to show a contrast. You see, it's one thing for people to die for a righteous man. Some would, not everybody. But the fact of the matter is, God didn't die for righteous people. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what his point is, is to tell you, isn't that not amazing? These godless people who hated God, didn't want anything to do with God, and God, as it were, were pursuing them with the initiative of his son dying for them on the cross, and they were turning around like I was to those dogs that followed me on the country roads in Tennessee, saying, get out of here, I don't want anything to do with you, leave me alone and go back to where you came from. And we did God the same way, except when his son came to this earth, when his son came to this earth, the idea was, if we get rid of the Son, He'll never come after us again. And they crucified Him. But He kept coming. He kept coming. Here's a poem. I've heard it. I've never had a copy of it in hand till now. It was written by Gene Richapin. It's called A Mother's Heart. It's in English, old English, so bear with me as I read it because it repeats some lines but don't miss the story, okay? A poor lad once and a lad so trim, a poor lad once and a lad so trim, gave his love to her that loved not him. Gave his love to her that loved not him. And, says she, fetch me tonight, you rogue, your mother's heart to feed my dog. To his mother's house, went that young man to his mother's house went the young man killed her and took the heart and ran and as he was running look you he fell and as he was running look you he fell and the heart rolled on the ground as well 
And the lad as the heart was a rolling herd. And the lad as the heart was a rolling herd. That the heart was speaking. And this was the word. The heart was weeping and crying so small. And the heart was weeping and crying so small. Are you hurt, my child? Are you hurt at all? I don't know of anything that would uh, get close to what the Bible teaches about how God loves us. But this poem, A Mother's Heart, would come close. Even after the boy had cut her heart out for the sake of the girl he loved, who was testing his love to her, to be able to say that that heart was caring and concerned about one thing, about her son when he fell down, rather than what he had done for her. If you can understand that, you can get a little bit of an understanding about what God did in loving us and sending His Son for us. Turning our backs on Him and, as it were, tearing His heart out. And yet His concern for us was continuous and perpetual. I read a story, and with this I honestly close. I read a story a few days ago. It was a story about a man who was an atheist. And from what I gathered, most of the story and what this context was, most of it is true. There have been some things, I believe, added to maybe embellish it. But I think the point and the, the center of the story is true. He had a son, an only son, and he had a very religious Christian wife. And I say very religious Christian wife in that she was very faithful in church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And she read her Bible almost every day. She prayed over her food in her home. Well, this atheist became increasingly disgusted with her leaving, taking the boy, and going to church every service and every Sunday, Sunday and Wednesday. And so he prohibited it. He, he caused it to cease. She then pursued him to encourage him to go. He refused to go to church. Then he began to see that she was just reading more of the Bible. And so he said to her, I want you to quit reading the Bible in my house. I do not want the Bible read in my home anymore. And she said, I'll do it in my closet. And he said, I mean, nowhere in my house. I don't want the Bible read anywhere in my home. So the woman complied. He came to the meals, and when she'd come to the meals, she would quote verses over the food. She'd quote verses that she had thought about and remembered, memorized. And as she prayed for the food for the family, she would quote these verses and pray and ask God to keep them in her memory that she'd not forget them. He one day said, hey, I don't want you praying over any more of the food. We'll not come to the table and stop and bow our heads. We'll just eat the food and, and, and go about our way. I earned the money, and we bought it, and, and this is ours, and we're not going to do this foolishness of praying. So the mother conceded. The son, remember, the only son, watched through all this, and he went on for several years. One day, the young boy, before he reached into his teenage years, became very ill. The story said they took him to the hospital, to a doctor, then they sent him to a hospital, then they sent him to a specialist, and in time, they realized the boy had an incurable disease. So they decided that the best thing to do was to send the boy home and not do anything really about it. Don't tell him anything. Just let him go on his own. Let him live as natural, normal, long a life as he could, but don't tell him. They didn't. So the atheist father realized day by day that that boy's life was ebbing away. And one day it became so that the boy was bedfast and could no longer walk and get up and play as he had done in the past. So the boy lost school relationships and so the boy was alone all the time in his home. And his father was at work. His mother was there. She cared for him. And she would even pray for him. Not over food, not reading the Bible, but prayed over the son. And the boy listened but didn't respond. The father would come home in the evenings, and the father would take all of his evenings sitting right beside the boy's bed. As time went on, it got so bad, the boy was so weak that he could hardly speak, and the father would get up to him. And sometimes the pain would get so great that the boy would cry out in agony. When he did, the father, the atheist father, would climb up near the boy's face and lend himself down to him, and he would say these words, Son, hold on. Hold on, son. And the boy would listen. He closed his eyes and relaxed, and then he would seem to pass that pain marker, and he'd go on to the next. Day after day, it continued to finally, it became evident and obvious that the boy was going to die any day now. So the mother told the father, I think he's going to die. The father stayed home from work, and the father stayed by his side and stayed right by his head. Every time the pain would come on great, the father would lean down to him and say, Son, hang on, hang on, son. And the boy did, as the father insisted, he would just simply hold his fist for whatever strength he had, and then the pain marker would pass, and he'd go about his pain in the normal, what we call, routine way. Then finally, 
one of those pain points came and the boy went into such excruciating pain his face grimaced and his eyes filled with tears and overflowed ran down the side of his face the father rushed to his side and realized the boy was right then dying so the father put his hand upon the boy's head and he reached down to him kissed him on his forehead and then he said son hang on son hang on son and the boy took his lip or his tongue and wet his lips as if to be able to speak one final phrase to his father. And in only a whisper that the father could hear by the bedside, it is said that he said this, Father, you have taught me. There is nothing to hold on to. And with that statement, the boy died. The boy died. You know what? strikes me about that is that uh, in one way or the other we're all teaching people who are close to us what to hold on to or maybe a better way to say it what's holding on to us my salvation doesn't depend on me holding on to Christ my salvation is dependent on him holding me it does not rest on how strong I am in my faith or how committed I am to him it has nothing to do with that it has everything to do with his commitment to me in giving his son to die on the cross and my faith in the finished work of Christ and the salvation that he has secured for me. So I'm not holding on and I'm not holding out. He's holding me. And he holds faithfully. He does not give in on bad days and let me drift as it were on my own. He rather holds me from morning to night, all through the night. And he has done so for the years of which I have been on this earth as a saved person. Christ holds us and he does so in his love. The question this morning is, do you know Christ? Is Christ in you the hope of glory? The Bible says Christ in you the hope of glory. Is Christ in you? Is the love of God shed abroad in your hearts to give you the assurances of his presence and his blessing upon your life? Are you sure? If you died where you sit... In this service, are you sure? Christ is your Savior. Heaven is your home. And you're certain of it. If not, I hope you will be. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And thank you for the assurances they bring to us. And thank you for the encouragement we draw from them. And for this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 5 that we have looked at this morning, we thank you and we praise you for the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. How thankful we are. For your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and died on the cross for us. How glad, how grateful we are this morning that, Father, you took the initiative and you sought us and you found us and you changed us. And you're changing us even now as your children from glory to glory. And, Father, this morning I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this building. Help every Christian here to take encouragement and solace in the comfort that we get from the Holy Spirit's presence and His work of shedding abroad in our hearts the great love of God. And help that security to impact and saturate every aspect of who we are. Our relationship to other people, our attitudes, our actions, our behavior in every setting. I pray, Father, the love of God would be, as it were, coloring every dimension of our life. And I pray that we would respect the Holy Spirit of God. Your Holy Spirit that you sent to indwell us, to guide us, direct us, to comfort, encourage us. All the things that he does and, and ministry he has to us. Oh, help us to understand it and to appreciate it and be marveled and wondered by it. And Father, I pray then for folks who are here in this room, no matter how old they are, young or old, that there's never been a time in their life where they realized they were a sinner. Never realized that they needed to come to Christ and believe on Him as Savior and Lord. And so this morning they sit in this auditorium as being religious, but like Nicodemus, lost. I pray for them too. Please draw them to the reality that they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It must be a circumstance, an event in their life where they actually took the initiative on the initiative that God took, that we believe on Christ. Because it's not that everybody will get to heaven because God is so loving he loved us enough to send his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is our initiative to believe on him that separates us from that root group 
that will go off into eternal hell. Father, I pray this morning, speak to our hearts, work in our lives, and change us for Christ's sake. For those who ought to come for baptism, for church membership, for prayer, whatever the need is, this is the time for us to act. Help us to be obedient to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 in your hymn book, Just As I Am, if you need a hymn book to sing from. And we'll sing the first stanza. If God has spoken to your heart, then let me encourage you to come and be responsive to God speaking and act upon that which you've heard. Especially so if you're here and you've never believed on Christ as Savior. I exhort you, I encourage you to come. Not take this message lightly because you must understand it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So there is a day when you will face God and there is a time when, as it were, you give an accounting of what you did with the truth. I just didn't believe it. I thought it was, I'd had plenty of time or I, I, I wanted another opinion. Let me tell you, I believe with all of my heart I have talked to you the truth this morning and so it's now between you and God to act upon it and to do right by it. So I urge you and I exhort you, please do not take it lightly. Take it as it is, an eternal, serious truth, and do by it as you should. As we sing, 282 verse 1, you simply obey the Lord, would you? Together. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come?